morning, everyone. I am not Pastor Rob, even though it says, yeah, okay. But I, my name is Pete, and I'm going to read our Bible passage today, and it is found in Acts chapter 4. Um, we're going to read uh, through the end of the fourth chapter and then into chapter 5 a little ways, um, starting with verse 32 in Acts chapter 4. This is from the New Living Translation. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. Peter said, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though All the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from all the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. Thanks, Pete. Welcome if we haven't met before. Interesting scripture passage. You know, fear gripped the whole church. I just love the uh, steady way you read that, Pete. And fear gripped the whole church. Like two people just died. Woo. Happy day to you. There are some times where I hear scripture passages and I think, yes. 
if the church could only be more like this. And part of this scripture passage is absolutely one of those. The generosity, the unity, the testimony, the healing, the miracles, that I think, yes, if we were a church like that, if, if the Church of America was like that today, I think people would be so less critical of some of the things that maybe you think or you heard here, like your Christianity seems really perfect. Like, I want to hear some authenticity and how you engage with God when life is really hard. Or your Christianity seems really surface. Uh, I think there's other faiths that are more devoted. So how do you encounter God in a holy way? Or your Christianity seems so individualistic. Who are the people who really, really know you? And maybe uh, your Christianity is really self-focused. It seems like your time, your money, your energy, your relationships all go at towards fulfilling your own needs. But where is that generosity like we see in this passage? And I think, yes, if, if the church was like this passage, then certainly there would be much less critique. But then people fall down and die. <laughs> And people cover up things that they don't want to see. And I think, well, maybe we don't want to be like that. So I come to this just honestly in this tension. And I'm thankful that Jesus said, according to Matthew in chapter 16, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so we enter today, this week, and in the word of God, reminded that Jesus is the one who calls us, that Jesus is the one who leads us, that Jesus is the one who actually invites all people off the sidelines of their life to be contributors and participants in his kingdom. And this is the first time that Luke, the writer of Luke and Acts, uses the word church. Matthew used it in his gospel, but Luke has not used it up until this point, and fear gripped the entire church. The church meant this called out and called together assembly. It was more than just people who were meeting together. It was people that were called out together. And certainly, there were some people that were called out in this passage. And so what, we're going to just look at that for a few minutes and, and, and listen to and wonder about how that speaks to our own lives and the challenges that it also speaks to our lives. Because I think for a lot of us, it's, it's hard to get off the sidelines of our faith or the sidelines of our life and actually join in. So the first verse that we read, or yeah, the first verse that Pete read was, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. To be united in heart and mind, in my mind, means they were united in what they thought about and what they cared about. Now, oftentimes people think of unity, especially in the Christian faith, as, well, do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God? Because I believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Oh, we agree on that? Okay, good. Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? I believe Jesus died for my sins. Okay, we're good with that. Um, do you believe people are created in the image of God? Okay, yeah, I mean, some people screw up, so we'll take that into account. But God loves everyone. Are we even... Okay, good. We're good. Yeah, because we, we have unity now. But actually, what Luke describes 
is this large multitude of people. In, the, in Acts, it, it has gone from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000, and we, we hear this thousands of people, and I think if we want to agree with a lot of people, we make the circle really, really small. We might be able to find 10 people to agree with us, or 20 people to agree with us, or maybe even 30 people to agree with us, especially if we keep the requirements you know, at a certain amount, but the more we can write down, the more we feel like we agree, that we can be unified. And so I think to have 3,000 or 5,000 or even 10,000 people united in heart and mind, it can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this description that Luke is talking about, it, it'll say that they were meeting in Solomon's colonnade, I think is the, the verse or the Solomon's porch. And so in order for us to really think about how the church was united in heart and mind, we have to understand that the temple was designed more like a college campus than just one cathedral or one building. And so the very centermost building, which is uh, right in the middle, that looks like an upside-down T, in the back of that was this thing called the Holy of Holies, and, and the high priest once a year could go into that space. And the Jews believe that that's where the Spirit of God dwelt. That's where the Ark and the Covenant lived. That's where God's presence was. And only one person once a year could go to that space. And then there was the holy place where the priests could go, but only priests of a certain tribe could go into that space. And then beyond that, there was the court of Jewish men. So you had to be a man and you had to be Jewish. And you probably had to be from the area, but I don't know that for certain for, to be in that space. Except, so more and more exclusive. But here we read about how, I think I have a second page, how this whole front wall, if you go back to the, the real, what it probably looked like, it's that whole front piece in front of the little shrubs and trees. So now you can go back to the other. That is called Solomon's Porch. That's this entire building with a patio-like setting that literally thousands and thousands of people could be in. But notice, it's on the very edge of the temple. Psalm 119, 63 says that I'm a friend to all who fear you, all who follow your precepts or your laws. It's this idea in, in, in unity that we come, we, we want to, we're interested in God's law, yet we let anyone who has reverence to God come. And so men, women, young, old, people from Jerusalem, people not from Jerusalem, a diverse group of people that were interested in Jesus were coming. See, unity is challenging because it requires us to give up some things that we hold dear, surrender ourselves to the Spirit, and be united in Christ. What are those things that are most important, as we like to say, the things that, that are essential or that you would die for. And then what are those things that really we could disagree about and still be in fellowship with one another? That's what I think it means to be united in heart and mind. And it's challenging because it requires us to submit to the Spirit, but it also requires lots of conversation. It requires us to see one another 
and to hear what other people think they agree with, what they disagree with, requires us to ask the Holy Spirit where we're being led. And I think it's pretty hard. And if it was just that, maybe we could get there, but the the text pushes us further. The apostles testify powerfully in verse 33. The apostles testify powerfully to the resurrection of Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. I think some of us read this as, they gave testimony to the resurrection of Jesus because God's great blessing was on them. They share about their faith. They confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord because God blessed them. And it's one thing for us to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but it's a whole other thing to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. See, the resurrection wasn't this distant memory or this calculated set of facts. The resurrection of Jesus was this personal encounter that these people had. They, they realized how personal it was. This man, my Lord, my Savior, my God, Jesus Christ, he saw me, he found me, he called me, he taught me, this is who I am and this is who I believe in. He's sacrificed for me and he's risen from the dead and I love him now. He's with me now. This is the kind of testimony that is challenging because it requires us to have a personal encounter with Jesus. 1 John says, and and John was the guy who walked with Jesus and probably 60 years later writes this letter. He's the one who, who calls himself in his gospel the one that Jesus loved. John says, we proclaim to you who exist, the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have seen and heard. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. And we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us because we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. This is a personal encounter. Where do you get to personally encounter God. One of the ways that I do it, not because of my job, but I think it helps, is encounter God through his word. But another way I encounter God is by hearing other people's stories and other people's hurts and other people's healings and where God has helped them. Another place that I hear God is when I'm still and when I when my mind is still because my body is walking and there's not very many distractions. And it's taken me a long time to realize that that's a desperately important part of my life that I can't neglect. Where do you encounter Jesus? And God's word pushes us even further Because if it was just unity and just testimony that would mark the church, I think maybe we could be called out and called together. But then it's their generosity. And I'm so glad that we don't have to lay our money at the apostles' feet like they did then. I'm like, send it online. So much easier. So much better. But verse 34 says, There was no needy people among them, because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. 
I'm fascinated here by what the writer includes and doesn't include. Because why does he include these verses on generosity when he's already actually said something in chapter 2 about that generosity and he's talking about unity and testimony right now. So, so why are those linked together? And I think when I thought about it for a while, I realized that, that it's easy for us to say that we agree with things. It's easy for us to talk about our relationship with God and actually just remain really distant from each other. But the writer describes how people came together, how they saw these needs and how they gave to those needs. Our generosity pulls us together. As somebody else said, if the word of God has taken root in our hearts, then the Holy Spirit must be at work in our hearts. And if the Spirit's at work in our hearts, then we get peace from him. We get unity from him. And that has to join us in true friendship with each other. See, I think generosity is challenging because it requires something of us. But it actually requires not just money from us. It requires us even more than that to see and to not see. What I mean by that is generosity requires us to see those in need rather than see them as needy. Think about a needy person in your life. You got them? The problem with needy people is they always need something. They need time or they need affection or they need compliments or they need money or they need help or they need healing, but they're always needy. And then I realized that I'm needy sometimes. And there's people in my life that don't see me as needy, they just see me as people in need. See, it requires us to see them, but it also requires us to not see. See, the, I think the apostles and the people in this chapter were able to see these people as not needy because they just saw them as family. They were people in need, and we help people who are in our family who are in need. And so they were able to share. But it, it requires us to not see our stuff as ours. Now I could be meddling because there might be things that you think are yours. Um, like when my kids say, can I have your phone? I keep it in my hand most of the time. Or when someone says, do you have a minute? Well, I'd like to keep that minute. I probably see that as mine too. But maybe you see your education as yours. You don't want to share that or or your friendships as yours, you don't want to share that. Your faith even as yours, you're not sure you want to share that. And here these people were not seeing these things as theirs. So much so that they give these two examples that are really extreme. One who stepped up and stepped in and shared. And one who held back. A couple who held back. And we'll come back to Joseph in just a minute. But we read about this couple that ends up dying. That brought part of the money but not the full amount. And... We wonder why it's so harsh. Like here are these people that want to step in and contribute and instead what happens is that they get killed. But upon further reflection, they really wanted to step up to be seen and praised. They didn't really want to see the needy. 
And I can't be generous if my, my pride blinds me, if my desire for affirmation blinds me. I think they wanted to contribute to Jesus' kingdom, but they didn't want to see their stuff as not theirs. Even though Peter said, hey, it was yours to decide what to do with, the sin was in the lying and the covering up. And I think what that says to me is, I can't have unity in Jesus' church if I pretend to bring all of myself, but then I hold some back. If you pretend to be all there and hold some back, people can't know the real you. I think they wanted to step out and contribute without having to really submit to the Spirit. They wanted to kind of join the change that was happening, this life-changing movement of Jesus without actually changing. See, these, I think, are the challenges with coming to Christ and his church. It's why the world has a pretty fair critique of the church. But I also remember that Jesus is and has always been on the move, always inviting, always bringing people from the edges into his work and into his plan, regardless of how great they think they are, because it's not about what we are or who we are or what we bring. It's about who Jesus is. It's about what he's done. It's about that work in each of our lives. And when we join with that, when we see the Spirit fill us, then all of a sudden these good things come out of us in ways that give life, that give freedom, that give hope in ways we've never imagined. And when we do that, we're a lot like this guy, Barnabas, actually Joseph. It says that Joseph was a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and he brought the money to the apostles' feet. You know, we can know a lot from just a few words. So Joseph is a Levite from Cyprus. So according to the law of Moses, a Levite can't own property in the promised land because God is their inheritance. And so as people who would be the priests or representatives to God and for the people, they depend on the gifts of the other nations. He's learned to receive those gifts, to trust those gifts, and then to offer them. The Levites are the ones who give to the poor. Now, he's probably, because he's from Cyprus, not Jerusalem, he probably owned land in Jerusalem, or in Cyprus, and that's what he sold. But if, if you really need to make that connection. But as someone from an, a distant island land who might have had a strong Jewish presence, he knows what it's like to be on the outside, or at least on the sidelines. And so he becomes someone who's passionate about bringing people in. And his given name is Joseph. And if you remember, Hebrew names are really important. And Joseph is the first person in the Bible from the entire beginning who actually looks out for the well-being of their brothers and sisters. Remember when Cain killed his brother and God came to him out of compassion and redemption and he says, what, you think I'm my brother's keeper? Do you think I'm supposed to look out for the well-being of my brother? The answer is yes. And Joseph is the first person to say, I'll go. I'll see to the well-being of my brothers. And things don't go well in his life. But actually through that experience, He not only sees to the well-being of his brothers, he sees to the well-being of the Pharaoh in Egypt. And he sees to the well-being of the entire land of Egypt. 
which not only saves his family, it saves much of the world. That's who he's named after. I think that impacts his life. And he saw those that were in need or that were on the outside. And he didn't just use his money. He used his words and his influence to bring them in. Specifically, this story we'll look at next week about this religious killer turned into Jesus' lover. When, he's, when he comes to know Jesus, his name's Saul, he comes to the apostles and the apostles are afraid of him and they won't let him in. So who's the person that goes and finds them and brings them to the apostles and convinces them that that he is who he says he is. It's Barnabas. It's the guy who's nicknamed the son of encouragement. And this man, I don't believe he ever forgot how Jesus changed his life and how Barnabas brought him in because every church he starts, every place he helps, Saul tells the people over and over and over, It's not just about knowing Jesus, it's about being involved, it's about seeing the others, it's about finding the well-being of the others. In fact, he says to the Romans, we all have different gifts according to the grace or the gifts of the Holy Spirit given to us, but whatever your gift is, use it. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with that gift. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, if it's to, yeah, I I was right, if it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's leading, do it diligently. And if it's showing mercy, then do it cheerfully. God has put something in each and every one of us. And no matter how much it's been buried or how many people have tried to take it away, God has put it in you. And he wants to see it come out, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been. And you'll know it's from God when it gives life to others that gives life to others. That includes each and every one of us. Now, maybe that means that you are the person that's on the sidelines and you need someone to help you come in. Maybe it means that you are in and God is pointing, nudging you. See them? Know that person at work? That person across the street? That person in your house? They feel like they're on the sidelines. They, they need you to use your words, to use your influence, to use your possessions, to bring them in, to be a part of the kingdom, to be a part of the church, to be a part of God's plan to redeem and restore the world. In fact, it doesn't have to be huge. As the band comes up, I just want to share one quick story. It doesn't have to be a huge, huge thing. Sometimes it could just be one word. So I was in confirmation in my church, in my little town, where I don't think I heard about a salvation with Jesus, but somehow I found him. And we were invited as a group of ninth and 10th grade confirmation students to observe a leadership team or a session meeting. And we did a lot of observation, but at one point, the pastor and the, the teacher lady, Vicki, they said, we want to do this activity where they put, they had each of our students put, each of the students put a paper plate on their back, taped on, and each of those, those adults, some who knew us well, some who didn't, but it wasn't a giant church, they had to write one word 
that described us. So imagine these adults and these kids milling around, putting these words, and I just so clear as day, I can see the paper, the paper plate. Honest. Friendly. Open. Outspoken. And that word, I was like, I don't really know what that means. So I had to come home, I asked my parents, my dad said, it means you like to talk a lot, which is funny because I really was afraid to use my voice. I've been bullied a lot. It was my mom. It was my mom who said, outspoken means someone who will speak for someone else who can't or won't. That changed the trajectory of my life. And I'm not that special. God can do the same thing in each of our lives and through each of our lives if we choose to step in and step up, regardless of the challenges. We do that today. We pray with me. God, I thank you for people in our lives like Barnabas that aren't afraid of giving some things up, that aren't afraid of stepping into places where they might have unity, where there might be needs, but that you'll come through. You are the ultimate giver, God. And we see this passage end with those miracles and those healings, God, and I really believe those still happen in our lives. I believe the people you put in our lives are, are healers and miracle workers if they will step up and step in to see a need and to be willing and courageous enough to meet a need. May you give us words of courage to bless the world. And God, if we are people who feel like we're on the sidelines, May we hear your call, that your throne of grace is open and is available, that we can run to you. Say, Jesus, I don't know everything, but I believe you are who you said you are. That you don't condemn me for my sins. You, you instead take those away and you give me relationship with you. And I can have a new life. That you put good things in me that you want me to bring out and share with others willing speak to us God